Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and I'm happy to have with me today, Mike Rothman. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm glad to be here. I'm good. We're glad to have you. So Mike is a 25-year security veteran specialized in what he considers to be the sexy aspects of security, such as protecting networks and endpoints, security management, compliance, and also helping clients navigate a secure evolution into their path to full cloud adoption. Mike is the president at DisruptOps, and in addition to his role at DisruptOps, Mike is an analyst and president of Securosys. Mike has a very diverse career ranging from being a programmer to doing network consulting and spending time doing multiple corporate jobs. An interesting random fact about Mike is that he's actually attended 23 out of the last 24 RSA conferences. Mike is also an avid traveler, and he considers to be really fortunate to be in a line of work that has allowed him to travel all over the world and experience unique lands and cultures. In the last few years, Mike has also been studying the Eastern mindset and philosophy, including Buddhism. We'll make sure to try and touch on all of these topics with Mike. So Mike, You've had a long tenure in the industry, and you started working as a networking guy at a time when nobody else wanted to do security. So how did you get started with security? So you're basically calling me an old guy. Is, is that right? No, it's, age is just a number. So. <laughs> well, I, I actually do, do appreciate that perspective because uh, I don't feel like I'm in my 50s, but I look at my career go. and, well, crap, and I look at my driver's license and, and there you have it. <laughs> uh, but, you, you know, it, it was really an interesting time because when, when I got, you know, kind of into the job market and started going down my technology path uh, in the early 90s, Right. I started as a mainframe programmer and my company that I was working for at the time uh, had a local area network. Right. So I just started playing around with that on my free time because I thought it was cool. And I had a cousin who was doing some technology stuff and he said, networking is where you want to be. Right. So you want to make sure that, you know, kind of understand networking. So I kind of started to, to go down that path. Uh, and then I was able to parlay that because I, I kind of wasn't really excited about mainframe programming after doing that for a year. Uh, so I ended up becoming a consultant on the networking side. Um, and then I kind of went into research, but all, all still focused on networking. Uh, this was really before security was even a thing, right? Then we started connecting up to this thing, and only old people will remember this, right? <laughs> Before it was the internet, it was actually called the information superhighway. So one yes. of my areas of research uh, back in the early 90s was this idea of the impact of the information superhighway on, you know, kind of how we would do networking and traditional networking. And, you know, I ended up kind of for my research team, I emerged as kind of Mr. Fix-It. So when we would lose an analyst, I would go and cover that space. So I was doing voice for a little while. I was doing carrier negotiations. I did wide area networking, you know, so I was kind of all over the map uh, with what I was researching. Uh, and then, you know, kind of the leader of the team at that point said, hey, you know, this security thing, we got people connecting to the information superhighway. They're using these things called firewalls. You know, we haven't really done any work on that. 
So I said, well, I'm Mr. Fix-It, so I may as well go in and figure out security. Uh, and, and honestly, I've been trying to get out of the business ever since, right? That's been, <laughs> you know, 25 or 26 years ago. Uh, and I, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because it has been not just a career, but but also a passion. Uh, but it really mm-hmm. was accidental. I mean, it, it was because there was nobody else to kind of learn about it. I just ended up, you know, kind of tooling around and, and figuring it out and doing a lot of research on it. And then, um, you know, again, the, the, the rest is kind of history. So you're, well, for our younger audiences who may not know what a mainframe is, do you want to tell them what a mainframe is? And a funny, <laughs> a funny story recently that I heard was that I think it was what New Jersey that's looking for volunteer COBOL programmers. I don't know if you've heard about yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. I did. I, I did see a headline on that. So, so basically, you know, kind of in, in, in the days of the dinosaurs and from a technology standpoint, there were these very large centralized computers called mainframes. The thing about it was like terminals and, and you, you know, all of the compute would happen in one place. You would use very structured programming languages like COBOL uh, as a mechanism to, you know, kind of program uh, the applications there, but you, you were part of a huge team. So now you kind of think about things from an agile perspective or DevOps perspective. And, you know, if you're lucky, you're working on a team with two or three people, you've got a sprint that happens in a week, right? When I started programming, I was part of a 200 person project team that was building telecom billing systems for the bell companies back then. Um, and, and our sprints were two years, right? <laughs> we would do upgrades and it would take two years to get them into customers' hands. And we didn't download it, right? You didn't download it over the, the internet. We actually had tapes that we would bring and fly down to the customer data center to load them up into their mainframe. So it really was a totally different world, which was why I was so excited about getting involved in networking because it was these PCs. Not, you know, I guess I had a PC on my desk, but it was only really to use it for terminal to get into the yeah. mainframe and, and to go uh, and, and do that. And that was one of the exciting things I got is, you know, you make jokes about a green screen, right? Because the first terminals were just green. All the letters were green. You know, basically when I got my IBM XT as the first, you know, kind of computer that I was able to use, um, you know, most the, the first PC that I was able to use, uh, I actually could change the color to yellow. So orange, <laughs> right? So I had an orange screen to get into my terminal, uh, which was very exciting, you know, for me at the mm-hmm. time. So um, yeah. it, it just, it, it's really hard to remember back, you know, <laughs> that far, not just because it was, you know, almost 30 years at this point, uh, but just how far we've come from a technology standpoint, right? The mainframes of those days, I carry in my pocket now, right? right. From, from a core I mean, our phones are more power, you know, more power standpoint. You bet. And from a storage perspective, I mean, there were racks and racks and racks of tapes, <laughs> you know, hardly even had disc at that point. Now I've got what, you know, kind of 500, you know, and I haven't even bought the big one, right? I got 500 gig on my phone, right? I mean, that's unheard of, you know, back then. So, you know, it, and back then we're talking about megabytes, right? If you're lucky, we're talking about yeah. megabytes of storage. Yeah. And uh, yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's actually nice to sometimes you know, step back and appreciate how far we've come. Um, just the advances in technology from computing power to storage, et cetera, just in a matter of two and a half, you know, two and a half decades, it's been tremendous how, how quickly technology has evolved and it's evolving even faster today, which is, you know, even sometimes yeah. harder to, harder to think of. So, you know, being in the industry for so long, you've been a security professional for 25 years. 
I know that for the longest time, security people were almost seen as a nuisance and people didn't like them. Um, how would you say the the perception of security has evolved over time? And what, what do you think are some of the key factors that may have triggered that, you know, those changes? Yeah, I actually think if you ask people, a lot would think that security people are still, you know, kind of irritating um, <laughs> and, and, and annoying. Um, so, yeah, I guess the best way to, to put it is I'll use the perspective of my mom, right? For 20 years, my mom had no idea what I did, right? Something with computers, <laughs> I don't really know. He flies around a lot. He does a lot of public speaking, says he writes things, you know, and, and does computer things. And, and that's about what I know. And then once security stuff started appearing on the front page of things, right, whether it was hacks, whether it was data breaches, you, you know, what have you, then I would say, mom, that's what I do. Right. Well, you, you hack these people? Well, no, I help the people to make sure that other people don't hack them. Oh, right. So as it's gotten more into the common vernacular, securities become much more visible. And, and I always make the joke of, you know, be careful what you wish for. Right. A lot of security people for a long time have been, you know, whinging about the fact that nobody takes us seriously. Nobody cares about what we're doing. They marginalize everything that we're talking about. And it's just like, be careful what you wish for, folks, because now nobody's marginalizing anything. We got to show up in front of the board and talk about why we're not, you know, keeping any kind of pace with the attackers, why we're not protecting customer data to the degree that we need to. And it's extremely visible. It's um, really kind of put down and enlisted in annual reports now, right? Folks mm -hmm. have to make attestations that have potential jail sentences on the back end of these things if you do it wrong. So it's become just a totally different game, right? You know, we joked a little bit before about, you know, being at, at 23 out of the last 24 RSA conferences. But when I first started going to the show, it was at a hotel on top of Knob Hill in San Francisco, and there were about 500 people there. Right. Most mm -hmm. of them were very technical people there to rub antennas with, you know, kind of a bunch of other cryptographers that would go. Right. It was just a totally different thing. And now you have, well, this year it was, you know, light because of, of the, the virus. Um, but, you know, 35,000, 40,000 people that go. So it's become a huge, you know, industry, a huge perspective, um, you know, an area where people want to come into it now, which I think is interesting because if they knew what security was really about, I think they would think twice about whether this <laughs> is a career that makes sense for them. Right? And, and, yeah. and by that, what I mean is, you, you know, security is one, of, I, I call it bizarre world, right, because for the most part, you know, the, the, the criteria for success is kind of inverted. You know, you come home at the day, you, you know, typically you'll have a conversation with your spouse or your significant other, whoever it is, uh, and you'll say, hey, honey, how was your day today? Well, my day was great. You know, what happened? Nothing. Nothing <laughs> happened today. And it was the best day, right? Because when you're in security, if something happens, it's usually not great. So Correct. there's just an inverse set of incentives here. You can't really win. You have to get comfortable with the battle. You have to get comfortable with incremental 
progress and, and incremental steps to get folks thinking the right way and doing the right thing and really installing and instilling a security culture uh, in an environment. Um, so, you know, these are the things that I find, you know, fascinating, right? How do I start to influence people, um, you know, from the standpoint to get them to start thinking about security, right? How do I get executives who really care about, you know, whether they're shipping the next thing to think about protecting, you know, customer data because they know it's the right thing to do, not because they have to, because the compliance thing said they needed to, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of those things are what keep me engaged uh, in the business, um, notwithstanding just this huge technology evolution that we're going through right now, or I guess I'll call it a disruption because that's what it is more than uh, an evolution. Um, yeah. But, you know, so, so again, it's one of these things where I joke about trying to get out of the, the, the business, but I feel like I work in a different industry every couple of years because the problems have changed, the attackers have changed, the underlying technology infrastructure has changed. Um, so if, it, if, if you're somebody who just wants to work in the same kind of environment and come to work every day and then leave every day and, and do your thing, um, security is not for you. And in a lot of cases, technology is not for you nowadays because it's it's moving faster than, uh, again, I think any of us have ever seen and, and many of us have been in this business multiple decades. That's actually a big reason why I enjoy being in this space, um, being in the space of security for about 13 years now. I, I do like the fact that it's ever changing and there's always a new challenge or a new type of methodology, a new type of culture that gets adopted over time. But I also like to look at the parallels of things that don't change. You know, a, a lot of the new vulnerabilities and things that are getting identified now Ultimately, they're still the same type of vulnerabilities we've been finding for the longest time. You know, they're still injection attacks. There just might be a different type of injection attack, but they're still injection attacks. They're still hijacking attacks, etc. So I also do enjoy looking at things that are recurring and are the same, but just look and feel different in the security space, which also makes it interesting. I also love the fact that you mentioned that your mom is your, your benchmark for, for making sure you people understand what you do or not. I use my mom the same way. For the longest time, I think she would refer to me as someone who works in the IT department. And I could never explain to her what I did. But I think the media is uh, deserve some credit here. The news outlets and the media, they've been focusing on cybersecurity related issues more and more, and they're highlighting the importance of it given how interconnected we are today, which is nice. And that makes everyone else now ask questions about cybersecurity and get a better understanding of what it truly means. Whereas before people thought, you know, we were just sitting in a room on a computer with like four screens and we were typing away on a black command prompt or something like that, right? It's in, not in, in a black hoodie. In a black Always hoodie. In a too, black of hoodie. course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. And, and we don't see sunlight for at least a couple of days or something. <laughs> That's right. So, That's right. so you, know, right. you know, we talked about mainframes and now let's kind of shift gears to something completely different. Uh, let's talk a little bit about cloud security. I know that's an area of expertise of yours. The question I really have is, you know, why is cloud security an important area of focus today? And most import importantly, what does it really mean to do cloud security? Yeah, you know, that's interesting because we just, honestly, I, kind of like I stumbled into security because I was Mr. Fix-It and I was the networking guy and, and somebody had to do security, so it may as well be me. Um, I, I really started to specialize in cloud security because I just got lucky, right? So we, we were friends with, with a guy named Jim Revis. 
Uh, and Jim founded an organization called the Cloud Security Alliance. Uh, and 10 years ago, he had this idea that he would do a certification called the uh, Certificate of Cloud Security Knowledge, right, the CCSK. Um, and uh, what he had was a certification, but no way to train people in how to do it and how to learn about it. So he approached my partner, Rich Mogul, and I, and he said, hey, guys, you, you know, I got this certification. I got a whole bunch of people that want to take some training in order to, you know, pass the test. Uh, is this something you guys think you could help me out with? You know, you know, can you can you build a training curriculum for me? So Rich and I kind of caucused for a little while, and, you know, we kind of came down to two real epiphanies for us at that point. We knew nothing about cloud, and we knew nothing about training. So, of course, we should build a cloud security training course well, why not? Um, and, and do that. Why not? Of course. I mean, why wouldn't we do that? I mean, you know, so part of that, I think, is Dunning-Kruger. We, we didn't know how stupid we were at the time, but, <laughs> yet, you know, we basically just uh, went, uh, you know, headlong in, into this world. And that was really 10 years ago. Uh, and we've been teaching cloud security black hat for the past five years. Uh, we've been advising some of the biggest customers um, on Earth in terms of how to, you know, move their traditional data center operations into the cloud and do it while protecting customer data, while taking advantage of a number of the unique characteristics of the cloud in order to, to make that better. And we also founded a company. So you mentioned, you know, in my intro, uh, I'm also one of the founders of a company called Disrupt Ops, which originated from some research that we did within Securosis that we spun out into a separate company to do cloud security automation, cloud security operations. And that's one of, you know, you know we're partners, right? We're partnered up with NetSpy uh, in terms of uh, working together uh, in order to help organizations both understand what is going on in their cloud. And that's where you guys come in, right? With a lot of, you know, kind of pen testing capabilities uh, and then to fix a lot of the stuff that you found. Uh, and that's where, where we come in. So for 10 years, Again, 10 years ago, nobody really knew what this cloud thing was. Uh, but as we got more into it, as folks realized that uh, when you start to be able to program your infrastructure, some people call it infrastructure as code, but you know the idea is you're leveraging compute, storage, networking somewhere else that are all accessible via programmatic interfaces, typically through some kind of API, but you're programming these things, you get a lot more agility and a lot more flexibility in terms of how you can provision and both scale up and contract your infrastructure. So it just gives you the ability to do things that you could never do in your own data center, uh, which, which is great. But as with most things that have just tremendous upside and tremendous benefit, there's also a downside to that, right? Or, or kind of the double-edged sword, so to speak, is that when you actually start to program your infrastructure, you end up having a whole bunch of application code that's actually representative of your infrastructure. And as we all know, defects happen, right? Humans yep. type them in, defects happen, you know, so therefore you've got a whole bunch of application security issues that are there. You've got access issues because one of the core essential characteristics of the cloud is broad network access, which means you need to be able to get to these resources from wherever you are. Well, guess what? If you screw up an access control policy, 
everybody can get to your stuff. And that's kind of how we see a lot of the breaches that happen now is that somebody screws up an access policy to a storage bucket that is somewhere within a cloud provider and bad things happen, right? Customer data is lost. Uh, it really is uh, not not a happy day uh, around the, uh, the water cooler uh, when something like that happens. So you've got a whole mess of different things. That's a very common problem scenario that you just described with access control. Uh, is it not also easier from security perspective to look at that code and identify issues instead of having to deal with all the network complexities as well? If you do it right, you, you know, so that's part of the, the challenge is that a lot of folks are trying to take their existing disciplines that they've done in their data center for 20 something years. Give me my firewall and I'll do my trusted zones and, and I'll want my network telemetry. So give me access to the packet stream and none of that stuff. Well, I wouldn't say none of that stuff. You can do all of that stuff in the cloud. It just may not make a lot of sense. Right. So what we're mm -hmm. trying to get folks to think about is how you can start using architecture as a security control as we move forward. And by that, what I mean is I can build an application stack that totally isolates my data layer from my compute layer from my presentation layer. I mean, totally isolates. It's like you physically can't get to it if you right, do it right. correctly and you set your policies correct. So those are things you can't do in your data center because, as we know, lateral movement is a thing. So once you compromise one thing in the data center, in a lot of cases, you've compromised everything in the data center. And the cloud, if you do the right thing from an isolation standpoint, from an account boundaries standpoint, uh, you don't have those issues. So it's really about getting folks to think more uh, expansively about what something like a programmable infrastructure allows you to do, what things like isolation by definition allows you to do, what default deny on all of your access policies for things that you put into the cloud, what does that allow you to do? So a lot of these constructs that are kind of foreign to people who grew up in data center land, you really have to think differently if you want to do stuff optimally for the cloud as opposed to just retrofit the crap you've been doing for many years. And it's a common thing that I tell people, the more code you write, the more opportunity you have for bugs in your code. We know there's no such thing as a perfect program or perfect software. Everything has bugs in it. So the more code you're writing, chances are there's more bugs in your, in your code as well. So any recommendations for people who are getting started with cloud security? What are some good resources they can, they can look for or start with? So I usually give uh, you know folks a, a couple of, of different homework assignments when I'm either doing a talk or, or teaching a class. Um, the first homework assignment is to pick up a book called The Phoenix Project. Uh, Gene Kim wrote that. It really is the treatise or the manifesto or the Bible of DevOps. Because regardless of whether you're in cloud or moving to cloud, you, we're going under. We're undergoing this cultural transformation on the part of IT that looks a lot like DevOps. Now, some organizations will embrace it in some ways. Other organizations will embrace it in others. But what that is is it gives you an idea in the form of a parable in terms of what is possible, right? What is a really broken environment and how can you embrace some of these concepts and fix your environment? So that gives you just some context for where things are going, what the, you know, some would say optimal state looks like over time. The other thing I'd say is go up to aws.amazon.com, right? And sign up for an account in their free tier. 
So they will give you an account for a year. It's called the Amazon free tier, AWS free tier, uh, and you can start playing around with it. Right, so start setting up servers. You can run servers, and you can set up networks, and they call them VPCs, or you know, um, in in Amazon speak. So set up a couple of VPCs and start peering between things and sending data and accessing things via the API and logging into the console and and doing things like setting up identity and access management policies on those resources that you're playing around with, just to get a feel for the granularity of what you can do in the cloud and how it's different from how you manage your on-prem resources. Because without having that understanding of how even the basic, most fundamental things work, uh, it's challenging, right? It really is challenging to understand how you need to change your security practice to embrace the cloud when you don't know what the cloud is. I'll also give a plug to you know our basic uh, training courses, because that gives you both uh, hands-on capabilities uh, as well as um, really just a background to be able to pass the CCSK uh, certification, but that means you can both talk the language of cloud as well as play around with uh, with cloud as well. So um, again, so it's really about just starting that journey to understand what the cloud can be and, and what it can do. Um, and, and the other thing is if, if any of you have programming backgrounds, uh, dust off your scripting skills, right? Because as we program a lot of our security moving forward, uh, being able to do stuff in PowerShell or Python or, or whatever scripting language you like, um, that's gonna be kind of one of those key skills for security people as we move forward, because again, we're not gonna be sitting on a console making the device dance on its head, right? We're gonna be programming stuff and understanding more architecturally how these things fit together. And those start to become the skills that are more highly valued, right? Architecture, understand how you can use some of the capabilities of the cloud as security controls, as well as programmability for how we're actually gonna build a lot of those automated motions to allow my environment to both detect things faster as well as respond and recover much more effectively, much more quickly, because as you said, right, it's all code. It's all code at the end of the day. In a, in a previous life when I used to hire developers, I used to actually ask them as an interview question to show me one of the scripts that they have written and explain why they did it and what it actually does. So it's, it's a good question to ask. I think if you want to know someone's a good developer who really hates doing things manually, wants to automate their workflow, it's, it's a good way to test out. So I always like that question um, and I like seeing what other people have done. It always gives me some good creative ideas. Yeah, good, good ideas. And, 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 and that's really the thing, because when things are moving as quickly as they do in, you know, driven by DevOps, but, you know, kind of manifested in the cloud, there's no room for carbon, right? You. So, you, you know, kind of you as a security practitioner, it's not about getting in the middle of a response, right? Mm -hmm. It's about making sure that your environment and your technology stack is resilient so I can move one stack out, rebuild the other stack, move the sessions over to that, and then I can start doing forensics on the stuff that's not in the firing line anymore, but I'm not taking down my stack for two or three days while when I try to figure out, you know, who the hell's in my environment and what is it that they've done, right? And what is it that they've stolen? Because everything's in code, I just pop up a new image or a new stack, I move everybody over to that, and then I deal with the attacker later. So what would you say from your perspective is the driving force that's causing people to move from the traditional data centers to the cloud? I mean, speed, agility, and cost. 
right? So your ability to, you know, and I, I, I tell the joke about, uh, remember the good old days when if you wanted to deploy a new server, you had to talk to procurement and then you'd figure out Dell or HP. It wasn't even called HPE then, right? Now Dell or HP would ship the box and it would show up in two or three weeks. If you were lucky, it would be on the, on the, the, the loading dock. You'd have to bring it into the data center, pop in another rack, start installing operating systems, you know, kind of get the thing all, you know, set up with your gold master code and then you could start to do something. So you want to do things, you're talking three to four weeks if you can get everything to work optimally, right? To be able to deploy some of these new technologies. Uh, in today's environment, if I have my AWS free tier application, I have a new server using pretty much any operating system I could possibly ever dream of in a minute. And you know, some of them take a little bit longer to boot up, let's say two minutes, right? So two minutes I have, unlimited, you know, really unbounded compute. I have unbounded storage. I have as I could set up a class B IP network with one API call, right? You can't do that in your data center. So there's obviously just a huge speed aspect of being able to do things and provision new things in the cloud. Um, and then depending on how you do it, you can actually save a lot of money because you're not using the resources that you had to build out in order to satisfy your peak usage, you can just expand your infrastructure as you need to and contract it when you're not using those resources, right? If you do it wrong, which is taking stuff you already paid for and depreciate it in your data center and move it into the cloud, that becomes a fiasco because if you're not ready <laughs> to do that, you're at, you end up paying by the minute for resources that you've already paid for and depreciated. Right? right, so that's not the best cost use case uh, to move to the cloud. But if you're able to auto scale and really scale up and scale down and you build things using microservices and a lot of platform services that you don't have to build and run all the time in your environment, you can really, I mean, build a much more cost effective environment in order to run a lot of your technology uh, operations. And, and then there's just the resilience. I, I told that story before, right? About, you know, kind of you take down, you you have an attack in, in one of your technology stacks, you basically just move it out, right? You quarantine it, you build a new one, you move your sessions over there. And you can't, unless you wanna have two totally replicable data centers, you can't do that in data center mm -hmm. land, right? Yeah. So there's just a lot of architectural things, a lot of agility things, a lot of cost things where if you take advantage of the capabilities of the cloud, it really is a no brainer for what it is that that you know you can do. I mean, global capabilities, I mean, again, so, oh, I just opened up an office in you know Southeast Asia. Well, great, AWS only has what? five data centers in Southeast Asia. So I've got my resources ready to go right there, wherever I need them. Azure and GCP have similar footprints, maybe not as extensive, but similar footprints. Their compute is where you need to be. And, and it's where stuff's going, right? Nobody gets up anymore today and says, gosh, I think I'm gonna expand my data center today. I guess some folks do, right? But, you know, kind of, I, I view them more as, you know, dinosaur types than these folks that are moving headlong uh, into the future. And maybe that's a, a little unfair. And yes, there are still <laughs> use cases where yes. it makes sense to 
think about cloud first, but you know, kind of overflow into your existing data centers or move stuff into your data center as you really get to high volumes. So there are use cases for on-prem infrastructure, and I don't think that's going away anytime soon. But when I talk to a lot of these organizations, I mean, they're really a lot of their innovation uh, is happening based on these cloud platforms, leveraging a lot of these agile, you know, DevOps type of techniques and some type of um, some type of continuous deployment pipeline in order to move their code, you know, through in a very predictable, tested and robust fashion. And just simply having the flexibility or the elasticity to just scale up and down the demand that you have from your customers from a usage perspective, it just blows my mind how sim- how much simplified that is now with the cloud, which is which is one of the one of the reasons I see a lot of our customers adopting cloud much quicker than they normally would have. Yeah, you bet. Let, let's use an example. You know, let's let's use a little uh, timely example, right? You know, we're in the middle of, you know, we joke about, you know, kind of being stuck at home, right? We're all stuck at home now, right? Because of this global pandemic virus. Uh, and a lot of us have adopted and spend most of our day on, you know, one or many of the web conferencing tools. But think about a company like Zoom, right? I mean, security issues notwithstanding, right? And I think those are, you know, very overblown, but let's not get diverted uh, into that, could be uh, into a whole that podcast specific discussion. Of its, uh, that could, that, that could be a totally different stuff. podcast on that one, you <laughs> bet. Um, but think about it, right? They had 4 million uh, users, active users a month four weeks ago. They have 200 million now. If you were sitting there waiting three weeks for all your servers to show up, guess what they wouldn't be doing? They wouldn't be supporting 200 million users. Never happened. So you think about the architectural um, accomplishment that Zoom represents and that all the cloud providers do in terms of your ability to, to scale things up, that's stuff you just couldn't do in your existing environment using the traditional tools and techniques for how at least the first 20 something years of my IT career, 17 years of my IT career, you know, really manifested. Now we're just in a totally different world, which again, I think is is really, really exciting, especially from a security practitioner standpoint, trying to understand how we can protect things as we've, you know, just if you do it wrong, again, totally exploded your attack surface. So this kind of brings me to a nice segue. Uh, Mike, when you and I last spoke, we talked about how mindfulness is important to you. And I know that in today's situation with all, all of us working from home and yeah. you know social distancing, et cetera, mindfulness seems to be a very important thing that a lot of people didn't consider before but are looking into. You've been looking into it for a long time. So what would you like to share with our audience in terms of why my, mindfulness is important especially for security professionals. Yeah, so as I kind of mentioned before, the incentives and kind of the success criteria for security people is a little backwards, right? So you can't win. It's not about winning, right? It's about surviving, right? Can I make it to the next day? Do I still have my job? Is my customer data been compromised? If the answers are the right ones for those questions, you get to play tomorrow, right? It's not, hey, I've won, I've made the sale, I've, I've prevailed. There's no prevailing because the adversary can be patient, the adversary has great resources, the adversary just has to be right once, you've gotta be right every time, and your data is all over the place. So when you think about doing that day in and day out for many years, it gets to you, 
right? You never feel that point of success. And nobody comes to you and says, gosh, security person, nothing happened today. You must be doing a great job, right? The only time you hear from these people is security person, you suck because my data is in Chechnya, <laughs> right? Or because this dude clicked on a phishing note and now half of my customer database is on some phishing site, you know, somewhere. That's when you hear from folks and that burns you out, right? So when I first started, I mean, I went through a you know, number of different kind of personal transitions around this time, uh, but it was 2012, 2013, there was a big move in the industry to start combating what we called burnout, right? And that folks that were doing security for too long were just getting burnt out. Nobody ever recognized us. We were just, you know, kind of the crappy folks that never got their job done. We were always telling people not to do stuff. I mean, it really was a difficult time to be a security practitioner. Uh, and I just randomly, right, because I was unhappy in a lot of different aspects of my life, came across the concept of mindfulness. And for me, that meant meditation. For other folks, it could mean yoga. It could mean, um, you know, again, walking, anything where what you're trying to do is quiet your mind systematically and train it like a muscle to be able to step outside of your current experience, right? As bad as things are, you're stepping outside of your current experience. Uh, and, and I credit, I mean, I, I really believe it saved my life. I was one of those, you know, type A wound so tightly, you know, type of person that really had a hard time moderating both my emotions and my capabilities. And what mindfulness brought me was balance and not balance from the standpoint of, oh, I work 49% every day and 51% I'm doing, you know, leisure pursuits. Balance from the standpoint that I wasn't consuming myself with um, non-productive thoughts right? I wasn't, you know, kind of spending all sorts of time griping about all sorts of things. I was just able to handle whatever came at me again, in a much more equanimical way, right? And, and it really did change the way I view the world. It changed how a lot of my relationships worked. I mean, I realized that, you, you know, you can still give people the information they need in a way they need to hear it without being an asshole. Right. And that was Correct. one of the kind of the things that, that yeah, that, that it brought to me was the ability to, again, step outside of my stuff and start dealing with the people who I'm trying to either help or communicate with. Uh, and again, it just felt very timely back in 2013, 2014, when I started down this journey. And it, it hasn't changed. Right. I mean, now my you know, my mindfulness pursuits are different. I, I don't sit on my mat for 30 minutes to an hour every day like I used to, you know, seven, eight years ago, but I do some type of physical training every day. And I usually do it at an, at an intensity level where I'm not thinking about all the crap on my to-do list, right? I'm thinking about not getting killed, either falling off a treadmill or, <laughs> you know, running into the street or, or falling on my butt, right? You know, kind of you're doing things in a way that really occupies your frontal lobe to a degree that you really have to be focused on what you're doing, living in that moment, right? And that's really what it is. And it's about training yourself to be able to live in that moment and to translate that into a security practice where, Again, you can't win where you're trying to influence folks who don't give a rat's ass about what it is that you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? And until it happens, they don't want to hear from you. And then when it does happen, they're going to blame you for not telling them beforehand, 
right? So being able to be much more, again, balanced in kind of your approach to life, I believe is just a critical skill in order to survive as a security professional. Um, and given kind of the demands on, on everybody, not just now, but, you know, in general, given how fast everything is running in the, uh, in the technology space, uh, again, having that kind of mindset is, is absolutely critical. And, and it's funny, it's one of the, uh, one, one of the things that, that your CEO, Deke George, uh, and I uh, bonded about early on. I mean, I've known Deke for probably 10 years at this point, uh, but we really bonded, you know, kind of about, you know, kind of his path. You know, he, he used yoga as a way to, um, you know, kind of embrace his, his need for mindfulness. But it's been something that's really linked us together over what's been a, a long-term, you know, and, and great friendship. You know, that's great to hear. And, you know, as a, what I tell people is that security professionals, I think our job is to tell people how their babies are ugly and say it in a nice way. So I, I consider that I've been successful most of the time because I've been able to be a jerk, but I do it in a nice way. So people don't get offended uh, calling their babies ugly. That's a talent. That's a real talent. So it's important. And for me personally, you know, the mindfulness for me um, at a time in my life when I was struggling came from exercise because I just needed to get healthier in general. So I started focusing on making sure that I was exercising at a regular you know, cadence and also music. I realized that I used to enjoy playing music as a, as a child and I kind of stopped. So I focused on trying to pick up new things and still be technical, you know, learned about how audio interfaces worked, how do, how do music how does music get produced and recordings and how are they done and how are they edited? So I got to focus on some of that for myself to, to you know, get out of the, the grind of the security space. So the technical aspects of music, which again yes. gave you something to embrace both the, you know, kind of logical engineer mind, exactly. yet the creative, you know, musical pursuits. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your travels, because I know that you're an avid traveler and you've been to various places because of your work trips. So you know, how do you approach your travels maybe differently now than you did earlier in your career? Oh, sure. And, and you, you know, I'm not a person who really likes to look in the rearview mirror. I'm, I'm the person who's always moving forward, right? Yep. That was it. That was my experience. I'm, I've never been impressed about all the things that I've done. It's just, yep, I did some stuff. Right. You know, okay. <laughs> Maybe some people would say, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. The stuff you've done. I, I've never been that guy to say, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, all these things that I've been doing are, have been great. Uh, I'm always, you know, moving forward, but, and, and that means I don't carry a lot of regrets, you know, with me in terms of stuff I didn't do or decisions I could have made. And that's in the past. I've, I've done that. I've learned from it and I'm moving forward, right. You know, kind of full speed ahead. The thing that I do regret is that I have spent so many years flying to so many places and I have seen so few of them. It really is a shame. And it was because when at that point in time, I was you know, younger in my career, my children were a lot younger. It was really about, you know, kind of getting home to them to be a present father, you know, with them and less about taking advantage of the facts that I was traveling to five European countries in a week and then flying back. Right. So what, what I've tried to do over the last, you know, five or six, the circumstances change. They, they do. 
Yeah, they, they do. But but also, I, I think it wasn't something that I found interesting or appreciated the gift of being in those places until I was a bit older. So if I could replay it and be, you know, my 25-year-old self now, it would be like, you know what? Yeah, it's tough, but I'm out here making a living, doing the thing, enabling my family to, you know, kind of live uh, really what's a very comfortable life. What I want to do is kind of fulfill my cultural requirements, my cultural needs a little bit more. So take a day, right? Maybe take two days when you're in some of these places to be able to explore and experiment and to see great things. And over the last, you know, five or six years, I've really tried to do that. So when I've done international travel, I've taken a day. In a lot of cases, my wife is able to come with me because our kids are a little bit older and we've got, you know, kind of other former spouses that can watch the kids when, you know, we want to take a, a long trip. And, and that gives us just a lot of capability and a lot of flexibility to be able to go to cool places and see cool things and experience new cultures and really learn. Because that's when I learn the most is when I'm able to, you know, sit and experience things and see stuff and provide the context and talk to folks from different avenues and different walks of life and learn about what it is that they're doing. Uh, and, you, you know, you can get very caught up and immersed in this lifestyle, right? You work in security 12, 14 hours a day, you know, you're, you're kind of immersed in your fantasy football or, you, you know, whatever other pursuits you have or listening to podcasts or, you know, doing all sorts of, uh, of other things uh, and you just get immersed in it, right? But being able to take a step back and experience somebody else's culture somebody else's life in a way that you wouldn't normally get to do that that's the gift that travel provides uh for me um and that's why you know we make it a, a real focus to one take advantage of it when work will pay for me to do that and also take advantage of it due to a lot of the frequent flyer miles that i get <laughs> in hotel nights that i get from the day job right and being able to go to cool places and stay in you know very nice resorts um and really experience a lot of things that uh, folks don't really get to. And, and I don't kind of um, discount that at all. I know how lucky I am to be able to do that kind of travel, to have those kind of experiences. And for me, it's a, it's a lot more important for me to do experiences than, they, than it is for me to have stuff. And I, I try to impress upon that to my kids all the time. They're like, what are we doing for my birthday? Where are we going for, you know, what am I getting for the holidays? You're not getting anything. We're going on this trip. <laughs> Right. And I'm like, oh, it's like, you'll thank me someday, but you're young, so you're not going to get it right now. But again, I, I would spend, you know, a lot more on experiences than I do on stuff. That's very well said. And, you know, I travel a lot too. What I tell people that I interact with, they ask me about the travels is make friends. You know, your the security community is very small. Your chances are you're traveling for business and meeting other professionals in the space make friends that makes the trips feel less like business, more like fun as well, because you're getting to interact with friends uh, at the same time. And oh, the frequent flyer miles and hotel points are definitely my favorite. I've, I've enjoyed quite a few holidays, uh, almost free of cost because of those points. So I definitely appreciate that perk. And that's been a benefit that I've reaped uh, over the course of my career. So last question for you. Why don't you tell us about one of your non-business trips and unique experiences or something interesting from that trip? 
Oh yeah. So, so over Thanksgiving, say, yeah, yeah, just due to my you know, kind of personal situation, I have my kids every other Thanksgiving. Uh, my wife has her kids every other Thanksgiving. So what we do is we align that so that we can take a big trip over Thanksgiving when we've got, you know, kind of vacation days and uh, the kids are with the, uh, their other families. Uh, and it, you know, what we did this past year is we ended up going to South Africa for 10 days uh, and doing safari and, and, touring Cape Town and seeing Johannesburg. Uh, and it really was, and, and people say, ah, oh, safari, bucket list. I mean, it really was one of those experiences to be in just unbridled nature, right? Folks in their natural habitat, animals that you that literally walk right past you. I mean, we had a cougar walk right past us, right? You know, kind of, we, we stumbled in the middle of a, a herd of elephants that were just, you know, doing their thing. Right, but they're so close you could almost touch them, uh, and it really was just an incredible experience. And then to be able to again talked about culture, right? We were able to also experience Cape Town and Johannesburg, which are totally two, I mean, same country, but feel like two totally different universes from the standpoint of you know just quality of life and and you know kind of just how the folks view the world. So when you talk to people in in both environments, you just learn so much about the history of South Africa, about apartheid and about, you know, kind of the struggles that that people uh, have there. Uh, And it really was just such an incredible um, eye-opening experience from the perspective of being able to, uh, again, just, you know, put yourself in somebody else's shoes for a little while, while, you know, kind of vacationing. And again, we weren't slumming it, right? So we were staying in, in decent places, but, you know, we would have conversations with folks that would, again, just really open up our eyes in terms of what it's like in a totally different place. Uh, and that's something, again, I, I certainly, you know, appreciate how fortunate I've been to be able to take trips like that, because I know not everybody can do that, especially as you're earlier in your career. Um, but that's kind of why, even if it's just taking a day to check out, you know, you're in, I don't know, Topeka, Kansas, and not that, you know, Topeka is a bad place or a good place, but it's just a place, right? There's stuff in Topeka for you to see, right? Regardless of where you are, there are security professionals. You get on LinkedIn, you do a search, who do I know in Topeka? Or whose friend do I know in Topeka? And you start to do that. So as opposed to and again that was another thing i did i spent so many nights eating room service in hotels right you don't learn anything eating room service in hotels go sit at the bar you don't even have to drink if you don't like to drink but somebody's (laughs) there you can strike up a conversation you can just meet somebody you can go to a different restaurant and you know i got very comfortable kind of eating by myself or sitting at a bar or anything like that because you get to again just talk to folks and experience things and broaden your perspectives because the folks you're going to meet in a bar uh eating dinner in Erie, Pennsylvania are different than the folks you're going to meet in San Francisco sitting in downtown, you know, kind of south of market, right? And and getting both of those experiences I think really contribute to both a a full and a well-lived life and that's what I'm trying to do, right? Every day I'm trying to just, you know, kind of meet some more people get some more experiences see some cool stuff help some uh folks on on uh you know kind of the client side um and and really kind of learn stuff at the end of the day for me that's been kind of the overarching theme is if i'm not learning things i'm not moving forward if i'm not moving forward i'm not a happy camper so i will uh uh, i'll I'll get into trouble when i'm not you know kind of busy (laughs) enough learning new skills no that's great and great insight for us to have uh south africa is definitely 
on my list of places I've been dying to go visit. So it, it's great to hear about it. And Erie, Pennsylvania, I've actually been there, believe it or not, uh, only <laughs> once. And it was very cold. Uh, it was at the wrong time of the year. But I did enjoy a few, oh. of, the, a few of the local bars and restaurants there. It was a lot of fun yeah. and very you colorful. Bet. I was I was there overlooking the lake, you know, Erie. <laughs> right on know, the, the hotel. There's a hotel was, no, on the on, there's a Marriott that's right on the lake, uh, which yep. is connected to a bunch I of uh, restaurants. That's where I stayed too. That's All right, right Mike. Thank that's you right. so much for, for being here. I really appreciate it. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.